Hi, my name is Greta Vosper, and you're listening to Catholic versus Other. Tell all the listeners a little bit about yourself, if you would please, who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe what you believe. I am a minister in the United Church of Canada. I have been in ministry for 25 years and for the last 21 years in a congregation in the east end of Toronto, West Hill United Church. That congregation, prior to my arrival there, had spent, I think it was about 15 years, studying progressive theology in an annual book study. So when I arrived, their interests and my penchant for moving beyond the traditional language of Christianity allowed us to begin the work of turning a typical liberal Protestant congregation into what we identify as a non-exclusive congregation in that we use language which does not exclude anyone based on their beliefs, whether they are believers, whether they're from Christian background, uh, Hindu background, whether they are non-believers. And so I leave that congregation and we continue to do that work, which I think is pretty cool. What are the earliest memories you have of some sort of religious content in your little world as a very, very young child? Can you talk about some of the earliest memories you have with religion? Yes, of course. Uh, I grew up in a Protestant church, Sydney Street United in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, I went to Princess Street United. Oh, did you? Oh, I was at Princess. That's, I think, Murray. No, that's not his name. There was a guy there who I knew. Burry Wiseman. Burry Wiseman, that's right. And so I participated in some youth group stuff when he was there. Anyway, yeah, so I grew up across the street from Sydenham Street United Church. And uh, because my parents were so involved, that was a focal point for our lives. Um, My parents, especially my mom, had a close relationship with the minister's partner. Um, The minister then was Jock Davidson. uh, And the minister with whom the youth and children engaged was uh, Donald Drew. So... It was really sort of the main focus of what my family did when they were together. We loved the space. We loved the proximity. We loved the people. Um, I remember my kindergarten Sunday school teacher, uh, Mrs. Dewar, um, who, you know, even well into my 20s would recognize me on the street. Uh, So... It was a very kind of, I think, typical church experience for a young person whose family was embedded uh, in that milieu. The difference, however, was that Sydney Street used uh, what was known as the new curriculum. That curriculum began to be uh, developed in the early 1950s, and its first year of use was 1964, which would have been right about when I hit kindergarten um, in the Sunday school. So I was exposed to uh, the new curriculum exclusively during my time growing up in Sunday school. The new curriculum was an opportunity for churches within the United Church of Canada to help bring families into Uh, an understanding of contemporary critical uh, scholarship as it relates to the Bible and Jesus and God. So looking back at it from this perspective, I can see that it was was a very progressive uh, interpretation of the Bible. 
and that the what was brought to students uh, and adults in that curriculum is the kind of scholarship that's been taking place over the last over 100 years but which often hasn't been translated from the pulpit to the pew so Donald Mathers who was the editor of that program uh, and a professor at Queen's Theological College took a lot of flack for the work um, that was presented through that curriculum because as continues to this day, um, there's a lot of sensitivity about uh, debunking some of the traditional understandings and beliefs about Christianity by exposing them to critical scholarship. So my understanding of God was never of an authoritative figure or being who judged me for doing wrong things and would allow me into heaven if I was good. Uh, I was never exposed to uh, Jesus as a salvific figure. Jesus was more a companion along the way who could invite me to understand things in an ethical way. And the Bible was stories, as they are often presented in Sunday school, um, stories that could help me understand ways to live positively. So while I now identify as an atheist, the roots of that are deeply embedded in my Sunday school experience. I was raised, like I told you, I was raised United Church of Canada, and I went to the Princess Street United Church under Bury Wiseman in Kingston, Ontario. And I think I got a lot of grace from prayer because I, I was in the habit of praying before bed. Is it really true that you never really believed in God as the creator of the universe and that's all good and all-knowing? Is it really true that you never believed in him? I think that language was probably, uh, I was probably familiar with that language, um, but I was never given an idea of a being that ruled over the world. And we prayed before bed uh, every night, but I think I was introduced to Jesus as the person to whom I prayed. And so that's really what it was like. And I can remember, I have a very vivid memory of the first time that I prayed in bed instead of kneeling beside my bed. And I was devastated. I think my older sister had told me that you didn't need to pray on your knees and you should pray in bed. And so I did that and I sobbed the entire time because I had lost this practice, which had been meaningful and powerful to me. I hadn't lost the practice. I had just changed the way I was doing it. Um, but that was still a profound uh, moment in my life such that I still remember it. And I have vague memories of my childhood. Um, but so Jesus, as I said, at, at Sunday school, Jesus was this companion along the way. And the stories about his life were stories that gave us some insight into our own lives and how we could and should uh, act in the world uh, in the relationships that we have with other people, predominantly at that age, I think. And yeah, so we did pray and, and I did have a powerful sense of that being important. I got lost one time. My parents couldn't find me, and I, when they finally found me, I'd been talking with Jesus, is the way I had put it, I guess. So that was a powerful presence in my life, but wasn't connected to a dominant father, God. Do you have a good relationship with your parents? And can you just talk a little bit about that sort of home life? And if you think there might be some sort of connection with early childhood psychology and your relationship with God the Father, which you seem to talk about like he's some kind of domineering guy, uh, I may be totally off base, but can you just sort of talk about your biological parents 
And if you think there might be some kind of psychological influence on how you relate to God or Jesus or the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'm certain that that they had influence. I mean, they were the adult figures in my life, of course. Both my parents are deceased now. Uh, and as I said earlier, both of them were involved in, in the church. Um, my dad, the weirdest thing about my dad was that he didn't go out the door and go to work. Um, he was self-employed as an engineer. So uh, the most troubling part of that as a child was when friends' parents would say, so what does your father do? And we really had no idea. So we couldn't answer that question. Um, but that was really the only sort of strange kind of thing. He was typically, for that time, you know, the typical dad didn't participate much in the parenting. You know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom who took care of four kids. You know, so it was a pretty standard 1960s childhood, I would say, uh, except for that weird thing about dad not going off to work every day. And God when I was in Sunday school, God was love, right? That's what we were taught, God was love. And and I didn't ever question that uh, to the point that my current understanding of God, if I was to have to come up with a definition, is, is exactly that, you know, slightly more refined than it was in my Sunday school books and my, and my Sunday school learning. And that experience that I was talking about um, at Princess Street United was a youth group put on uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, and I went to that with some friends. I think I was in grade 9, so I would have been 13, and we were there in the audience, and then we all went downstairs, and there was this whole kumbaya in the circle kind of thing, and and it was all very moving And until my mother came crashing through the doors because she thought I was getting involved in a cult and then <laughs> grabbed me by the hand and dragged me home, which was mortifying, as you can imagine. But that was a really powerful and very um, poignant moment, actually, uh, being with a bunch of people, having what most would identify as a spiritual experience after this powerful play had been done and enjoying uh, the pleasure of that experience. So that might be part of why I continue to participate in religion as an important aspect of my life. I meditate on a daily basis, which is probably the closest thing to a spiritual experience that I have regularly. I've experienced many different ways of engaging with religion, each of which could probably be placed somewhere along a psychological spectrum uh, in terms of what I was wanting at the time and and what I what I used in order to access that and I, and I think religion is used in in many ways to uh, support or process or refine or contradict life experiences even when we say we have no religion, there are ways that we still do that that others might point to and say, well, that's kind of a religious sort of or a spiritual kind of response there. So in our course at Theological College Integrative uh, Theology, we did that work of trying to understand who we were in our own story, in our own religious story, and integrate that with our praxis as clergy, um, or clergy training at the time. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that examining those kinds of things is can only be fruitful at the end. I mean, I think the process of examining them can be traumatic. Yeah, it's hard to see ourselves. It's easier to see, like, a spouse or something. Are, are you, do you have a significant other? 
Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that person and that relationship and how you met? Uh, yeah, he's. I met him at church when he took the position of music director back in 2001. And we've been married since 2003. And he has a evangelical Baptist background, but uh, his religious beliefs started unraveling while he was doing a bachelor in social work. And in the course when he was being taught about critical perspectives and learned that critical theory could also be applied to religion and uh, his understanding was yeah oh, of course every other religion but mine um, but then he turned those tools on his own beliefs and unraveled them all quite unintentionally but that's what happened so he took the position of music director at West Hill because we were looking for someone that had a more contemporary feel for theology, uh, for music, I mean a contemporary um, feel of music, and he of course was a, from an evangelical denomination and was embedded in that kind of music. So he's written a lot of music that we use at West Hill because most hymnody is not, it's not theologically uh, representative for us, uh, neither is contemporary Christian music. So Scott writes music in a contemporary Christian model and uses uh, post-theistic uh, contemporary language, like everyday language, to express the kinds of things that we choose to express. Walk me through one of your typical services. If you would, just in broad outline, what would someone experience from the moment they walk in to West Hill to the moment that they walk out? Um, you'll walk into West Hill, and it's a 1950s, you know, mid-century building, and you'd come in the glass front doors. You'd pass by a kiosk that sells stuff that is made by a group of women in the in the congregation and also sells my books and um, other stuff like that. Uh, you'd be greeted probably by several people on your way in and provided a name tag through the double wooden doors. You'd go into the area which uh, we call the gathering hall and it itself is the original church that was built in 1960 dark brown brick walls, has a large squared ceiling, and you'd come in, sit down either in a mid-century pew or one of the rocking chairs or one of the other chairs, so we sort of have mixed seating. Two screens project the uh, service elements up at the front of the hall. There's rainbow streamers tied to the foot of a 20 or 30 foot Celtic cross and those streamers go up and fly sort of through the sanctuary. So we are an affirming congregation. At the front of the sanctuary are two fabric sculptures, which sort of define the spiritual journey in art. That was the 50th anniversary undertaking of the congregation. It's been in place since 2000. There is a grand piano, a small grand piano, no organ, large, uh, marble communion table up at the front. The first thing that would happen um, in the service, you'd be handed a, an announcement um, sheet, which is really just to take away with stuff about what's happening in the next while. In the lobby, as you passed uh, by, there would be tables that have our vision work statement, 
uh, the words of commitment that we say each week, information about West Hill, because we've just come through the Christmas season, there's a flyer that explains what Christmas, what we do at Christmas. We don't have a Christmas service. We have a longest night service on the winter solstice. Um, so the service uh, music would be happening. A layperson welcomes people, reflects a little bit on something, uh, we call it a West Hill moment informally, it's not called that anywhere else, but people usually refer to their West Hill moment, uh, and they, they bring something from the week that they think is important, or they welcome people in a way that um, is appropriate to them. Um, there are a couple of quotes uh, that are pertinent to the topic being explored that Sunday that you'll see on the screens. And then um, we do celebrations. People share celebrations that are going on in their lives. And then we do a greeting. A good full five minutes um, often ends with a foghorn triggered by the guy on the sound system. Uh, it's mostly hugging. People just running around hugging, welcoming people they haven't seen in a long time or welcoming newcomers. Uh, newcomers are warned that this is a very vivacious time and uh, they can participate as they want to. Um, if you're a newcomer, you might just sit in your seat and people will come up and shake your hand or you can just get right into the thick of things. It's up to you. After that, there's an opening song, usually a contemporary uh, song or a traditional hymn tune that has new words written to it. Lots of times people are overwhelmed when we sing uh, traditional tunes with new words um, and are unable to sing because they're in tears. They feel that they've been gifted with an old, old uh, friend that they have lost for a long time because they haven't been able to abide the theology. So those traditional tunes are viscerally important to many people. There's announcements and the offering is taken up during the announcements. The plates are pretty empty because most of the people in the congregation are on pre-authorized remittance. We try to mention that because sometimes people are alarmed because there's no money in these plates. How does she, how does she get paid? But, uh, and then the announcements about different things that are happening at the church go on. We have uh, sharing time. Scott introduces it with a time that's called guided, grounded, guided growing. And he stresses that we are grounded in the interconnectedness of all life. We are guided by the value of love, and we are growing in wisdom as we seek to interpret the ways in which love is to be lived out in the world. So that's a core element of gathering is explaining what we're doing here, and it's done differently each week, but it's that slide that goes up that says grounded, guided, growing uh, is very familiar to the people of West Hill. Uh, following that, we have a community sharing time. I move into the aisle. Uh, we do a three-part community sharing. Uh, the first is when people from the where they sit call out the names of places and groups that are in particular need at this point in time. We move then into a more intimate time where people uh, share what's going on in their personal lives or, or the lives of someone they know and love, uh, or they may speak about an issue that is close to their heart for uh, whatever particular reason on that day. Uh, and then the third part is when people just from where they're seated call out the names of individuals and organizations that are doing uh, very positive work of uh, justice and compassion and right relationship in the world. 
Um, then we repeat the words of commitment that were written in, in 2005. And uh, there's readings. There's generally one, at least one, and probably two readings from sources other than the Bible. There may be a Bible reading, but it's rare. Each week I read the lectionary passages for the week, and then I choose a theme from that. I then go to look for secular readings consistent with that theme. If the biblical readings are appropriate, and by appropriate, the only requirement for readings at West Hill is that they be worthy of the people who have gathered there to hear them. So they will be inspirational, they will be edifying, they will be challenging, but they're worthy of the people who are there. It's not trite stuff, and we do not account any particular source as privileged. So we look for the wisdom within a particular reading rather than choosing things because that person is an expert or this book is considered sacred. Uh, following that, um, I generally I write a, a poem each week called A Focused Moment, which is about the theme, and I read that generally to Scott's uh, impromptu accompaniment. Uh, we'll sing another song. The choir may do a piece. They don't sing every Sunday, but they may do something, and then I bring my perspective. Uh, we don't call it a sermon. We call them perspectives with the S in brackets, and that's a reminder that I'm offering my perspective, or the speaker, we have guest speakers regularly, they're offering their perspective, but everyone is responsible for adding their own perspective to it and sharing it elsewhere in their life. Uh, following the perspective, there's a time for reflection, just a quiet time, and Scott sometimes plays for that, and then I get up and give them ascending, uh, which grounds them again in, in what we have been attempting to accomplish in our time together, and that is reminding ourselves about the values by which we choose to live and encouraging us to go out into the world and live those values out as completely as we possibly can. And the first Sunday of every month, we have a visitors and travelers lunch. Uh, we have people who travel regularly to be with us, um, some of them 125 kilometers away from us. So. It's a journey to get there, and there are some who come from even further than that, and they come on those first Sundays of the month, so they get to be seen and known by the congregation they visit, they chat. They're recognized as members of West Hill, people of West Hill, even though they're not there every single Sunday. Is that a one-hour service, a two-hour service? What is that typically? It's 90 minutes. We, we aim for 12 o'clock. Sometimes we go a little over, sometimes we go a little short, but it's, it's generally about 90 minutes. Okay. On one end of the spectrum, you've got quietism where people sit quietly waiting for the Holy Spirit to move them individually. On the other end, you've got churches where everyone's singing and yelling and screaming the whole time. I think you're probably somewhere in the middle, but maybe leaning a little bit more towards the quiet side. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was taught uh, the elegance of liturgy and the emotional response that that creates. And so... I am attentive to that. I am very careful not to be emotionally manipulative, which would perhaps be that one end of the spectrum about which you're, you're speaking. But I also feel responsible for guiding uh, and supporting individuals through the process of the liturgy. 
Um, so yeah, I would say we're probably closer to the quiet, but we're not quiet. Is it too much to ask for you to recite one of your focus moment poems? Is that too intimate? Um, you'd have to give me a second to find one on my... Okay, this was the one that I did for this year's affirming service. And the, our guest speaker was bringing to us um, the work that he had done about the pink triangle. So the pink triangle was a badge that was sewn to the prison uniforms uh, by the Nazis of gay men predominantly. Uh, women weren't really too much of a concern at that point in time. But the horrors, one of the horrors of the pink triangle that of course I had never really considered was that when the camps were liberated and prisoners were released, people with pink triangles didn't get to go home because homosexuality was still a crime. So this focus moment is really about identity and recognizes that for gay or lesbian or trans or bi people back then in the 19, late 1930s, um, beginning in the 1940s, was an isolated reality. It, it continues to be an isolated reality for many, many people, but in total isolation, it's often hard to even understand who you are or to name yourself. So this is about the pink triangle actually almost being uh, in its horror, almost being a gift because it allowed people to see and know one another in a way that, that they didn't uh, normally in the world. So, so I will read it in the way that I read it um, that Sunday at church. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't give them that kind of an intro. Um, they are, like, they're prepared for that, so they do that interpretation themselves. Okay. Desire rose without a language that might speak it into being. Unseen amidst a world of love's conventions, no heart attested to it, acknowledged it. No passers-by reflected understanding in their eyes. Its secret, long suppressed in the marrow of youth, in the nightly dreams of those who would not speak the words, who could not claim in morning's light the passions by which they themselves were claimed, their lives, their love without a name. Steady, 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 steady this longing for what cannot be named, steady as the beat of their hearts, their fevers buried deep beneath the mask of respectability, the daily chores, the conversations about this and that, the conversations about things that didn't even matter, steady, 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 steady. How could it not break or burst its bonds, be spoken, known, released, unfurled as beauty against this demeaning sacrificial sky? How could it not fight its way to freedom, to light, to beauty, to wholeness, even should it then be stitched upon one's breast, a mark of degradation that brought truth and with it consecration? You mark me who I am, but with that mark, you named me. Um, another point that I noted while you were listening, sort of the experience of your services, was the way that you swapped out the lyrics to some traditional hymns and songs and popular music uh, that people might be familiar with. What came to mind immediately was a French saint in the Catholic tradition from the late 17th century, say Louis de Montfort, I don't know if you know about him, mm -hmm. but 
he did the exact opposite. He went into the taverns and the places of disrepute and he heard the popular songs Mm -hmm. and he took those songs and he gave them Catholic lyrics and he used that to sort of rally the troops. And so it seems sort of diametrically opposed to your approach, but uh, that's more of a comment than a question. But if you have any response, you can give it now. More a technical response. Initially, when we were needing music, we tweaked uh, hymns that were in the public domain. Um, but subsequently, we've we've decided we'd rather write entirely new lyrics because it's just easier and cleaner. Music in the church has traditionally reflected theology. I mean, from of of the Father's love begotten, which is you know. Uh, theological argument resolved straight through to the praise choruses of the evangelical church. Now they're presenting theologies and we're presenting a worldview that we think is significantly important, steeped in values, raising the call to action. I mean, Scott writes beautiful stuff. A lot of it is about that call to action, but we also, you know, he he wrote new words to uh, Oh Holy Night, and it's powerful because it's accessible. If my congregation sings of the Father's love begotten, I have to get back into the Aryan controversy and explain that if they're going to want to know anything about it, right? So otherwise, they're just singing words they don't understand. And most congregations aren't that theologically or creedally literate anymore. So we want, I don't want a learning curve when people come in the door. There should be no learning curve. They should just get what we want it, want them to get, right? So that's what we do. <laughs> Is there sort of a favorite refrain of a favorite old-time hymn? Is there something like that, an example that you could give? Okay, I'm running through my file now. Okay, here's um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, okay? And this was rewritten for our longest night service. Okay, O come, lights dawning, burn within my soul, the tinder of my heart you can make whole. O come, ignite my passion to see the truth of who I am, who I can be. Rejoice, rejoice, to fear I bid farewell, that light may come within my heart to dwell. So it's about my own being transfigured by the presence of light, which is a symbol for hope and beauty and goodness. Oh, come light's beauty, come amongst and cheer our spirits by your radiant presence here. Oh, come ignite our passion to see that we can live in peace and harmony. Rejoice, rejoice to anger, bid farewell that light might come within our hearts to dwell. That sounds, yeah, I could, that's open to interpretation where I would be comfortable with that as a Catholic. Exactly. And that's the point, right? So Catholics and Protestants and Muslims and uh, Buddhists and atheists, they're all there. And people often say, okay, so how many in your congregation are, you know, traditional believers? I have no idea. We don't ask people what their beliefs are. I don't know. They're just comfortable. I I often share the story that a a woman uh, shared with me. She's a long-term member of the congregation, and uh, someone had been sitting beside her who was fairly new to the congregation, had been coming for a few weeks, and turned to her and said, does she ever talk about God? And the member of the congregation turned to her and said, that's all she ever talks about. But if the woman had been sitting on the other side of the hall with somebody else, that person might have turned to her and said, oh, for heaven's sakes, no, she never talks about God. She's an atheist, right? Like people interpret what I'm doing in different ways. And that's 
absolutely perfect for what it is we're trying to do. I want to talk about something that's a little bit delicate, which is the enemies of your movement, your work, your vision. Talk a little bit about the antagonism, uh, what you're up against. Yeah, as as you know, um, we've just recently concluded three and a half years of disciplinary review, uh, which took place within my denomination and felt like a betrayal to me because as I've shared with you, I was raised in the United Church and um, my theological education affirmed uh, what I had been taught in Sunday school while it tore apart what most people who arrived there had learned in Sunday school. So I left theological college with a deeper appreciation of the Christian tradition in which I was born. Uh, and when that tradition turned on me uh, in 2015, it was deeply disturbing because it, it felt like this was no longer my denomination. In the United Church of Canada, most uh, disciplinary procedures against clergy result from bad behavior, right? It's about clergy not respecting the leadership in their congregation or not respecting the presbytery uh, to which they belong. And indeed, the only ways that a minister can be reviewed in the denomination is for ineffectiveness, which means they're doing something in their church which is not conducive to the well-being and health of the congregation, or insubordination. Um, so when they wanted to review me, they had to come up with a new process because I was considered effective and I had never been insubordinate. So they came up with a process that was based on ongoing affirmation of my ordination questions. And they put that ruling in place for all clergy in the United Church. In order to understand why that seems odd, you need to understand that the United Church um, has had a clause called essential agreement throughout its entire history since its inception, which has allowed the ordaining bodies within the United Church to determine exactly what theology they wish their ordinance to have. So we have very conservative conferences in the church, uh, which would have expected me to say that I, when I say, said, I believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would expect me to understand that literally and be able to explain what I meant by it. Um, or you could have very progressive conferences, such as the one I was ordained in, or Saskatchewan, which is also very progressive, which would have, if I had come in with a literal explanation of those things, would have sent me back to do some more reading. So my understandings, uh, when I answered those questions, were very metaphorical and had been um, honed in my theological education. Uh, and that has meant that there's been a diverse pool of beliefs across the United Church, and that has been the United Church's strength, um, I believe, is its diversity. Uh, however, over the last 10 uh, years or so, uh, it has been quietly moving further to the right. Uh, I believe that is predominantly in an attempt to attract the demographic that they feel is not currently represented in the denomination. So they uh, made this ruling and then uh, undertook to try me with that ruling. So when someone is being reviewed, they're going to be reviewed because concerns are raised about them. And it was the voices uh, from without that were used to trigger the review. 
despite the fact that our polity only allows those in immediate relationship with the person to raise concerns. So that was really troubling that my overseeing body would listen to uh, complaints coming in from people who weren't even in the United Church, who clearly, if they'd had a conversation with any United Church minister, would have been completely aghast at what they heard, that they would use that to start this process. And the process was, was a hard one uh, throughout. The most difficult part for me and for my congregation was our uh, repeated requests to have conversations, um, which were denied at every level. And the fact that all of those who were involved in the process, almost every single one of them had never actually been at West Hill and never had a conversation with me about what it is that we do and why we do it. So that felt cruel and um, very non-United Church. Like that was, like we've been a, a denomination of dialogue and uh, there was no dialogue taking place. So that was difficult. So the voices within the United Church um, who speak out against me are often clergy who know nothing about me. Subsequent to the review, there was a podcast uh, that was posted by one of the theological colleges, one of the United Church theological colleges. It had a host and two faculty members, and those two people had no understanding of who I am, of what West Hill is, of what my theology is, of why I do what I do, but they felt comfortable sharing that as theological professors in the denomination. And I find that shocking. I don't know what it is that people are so afraid of that prevents them from having the conversation, um, but they would much rather uh, interact with a caricature of who I am than uh, with me personally. And, and so in the last year of the review, uh, in 2017, uh, West Hill decided that we would go on the road and any congregation that would invite us uh, and allow us to come there would have a conversation with us. So those were not opportunities for me to speak. I didn't need any more speaking opportunities, but they were opportunities for the congregation to engage. So we had gatherings in Victoria, in Edmonton, in Toronto, in Kingston, in Montreal, in Fredericton, and in Shelburne, Nova Scotia. I think that's all of them. And at each of those, people were able to hear why we do what we do. We spoke to over a thousand people. In Montreal, uh, one of the powerful stories that came out of the process was uh, we heard at the end of the evening um, when people had left and we were cleaning up and there were four members of the congregation had come with me, uh, a couple that drives the 125 kilometers to be at West Hill with us, a 98-year-old member of the congregation who has been a member of the congregation uh, for many years preceding my being there, um, and a relatively newcomer to the congregation. And after the event was over, the woman who had prepared the refreshments spoke to one of the members of the group and shared with them that a gentleman had come in early on and she used the word vitriol to explain how he, uh, his approach to who we were and what we were doing. He was 
incensed uh, by the fact that we were doing this and doing it in the United Church. And she said that at the end of the evening, he made the point of going over and speaking to her and saying that he had completely reversed his position, that he thought that what we were doing was extremely important. So that's just the kind of thing that happens when you have dialogue with people. But if you are barred from having dialogue, that is deeply troubling. And it continues um, prior to the decision um, being made that I was unsuitable, the presbytery, which is the group that I'm a member of, had been invited to make a presentation at the meeting at which that decision would be made. And, and they went to that and I chatted with them before the meeting. And then we went into the meeting and then they stood up and said that they agreed with the report that found me unsuitable and that I should be removed from the ministry. And I was was stunned. These are my colleagues with whom I worked the most closely, and they had not even shared with me their intentions, uh, and they had not had a conversation with me about the report, which is filled with misrepresentation, misquotes, fabrication of things that I said, which I did not say, and is a travesty in my opinion, right? But they never even had a conversation with me about it. So they didn't learn that. And subsequent to the settlement being reached and my being, you know, uh, recognized and affirmed as a United Church minister, I sought to go and see them and have a conversation with them. And that was, wasn't denied, but I was told that I wasn't welcome. So that desire to impugn without any knowledge of what's happening or any reason as to why we're doing what we're doing, any knowledge of that reason, um, continues and is deeply disturbing to me. The analogy that I like to use is the vegan club. I mean, you may be right that meat eating is the best thing and that veganism is stupid, but why are you doing that in the context of my vegan club? <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Go and form your own club, which is not a vegan club. Your club is a meat eating club, clearly, because you're doing the exact opposite. So I'm not trying to attack you here. What I'm trying to say is, do you see how there's a sort of coherence that a Christian church would want to maintain, what's your response to that? My response is you're caricaturizing me. I am not trying to do something within my denomination, which my denomination has not nurtured and created. So to caricaturize the United Church as a Christian church that believes that God is a supreme being who reigns over heaven and hell, and Jesus is our door to heaven, that's not who the United Church is, and never has it been. You know, I'm kind of trying to stretch my mind and to accommodate you, and I love and respect you first and foremost, okay? And I don't want to burn you at the stake. But at the same time, I'd like you to try to stretch your mind a little bit into my point of view, where I have this long history in the church of church councils, of popes, of saints, fighting against heresy. I know you see that maybe as a dark thing, but for me, it's a glorious thing where there's truth and then there's error. And when Arius, for example, you mentioned the Arian heresy, when Arius came as a Catholic, ostensible Catholic, and contradicted the truth, he was confronted, he was condemned, and he died a miserable death. Personally, I hope that Arius makes it to heaven because I don't want anyone to go to hell. But at the same time, we acknowledge that there is a hell and that we can choose to go to hell and that we can oppose the truth, the one true God. 
and the one true religion. So I just want you to sort of acknowledge my perspective, even though you think it may be outdated or outmoded or that it may be harsh or that it may be overly dogmatic, at least try to acknowledge that that is my perspective and that from that perspective, your way of doing things seems like anything goes and that the truth doesn't matter. So I just want you to try to acknowledge my perspective and give a little bit the way I'm giving to you in terms of accommodating and listening. Are you able to do that? Sure, I can. I mean, I understand people have different perspectives. I'm concerned when those perspectives are dangerous. And I'm concerned when those perspectives allow us to use religion as a weapon. Um, I think religion is, has brought much beauty and light into the world. But I think that the divisive elements and the judgmental elements of religion are very, very dangerous. And I think religion's myopic worldview at this point in time in the history of the human population is critically problematic because we can't invest exclusively in an otherworldly real estate while the real estate under our feet and that's going to be under the feet of generations to come is boiling to the point that the cruel realities with which people are going to be living are going to be medieval in content rather than anything that we would consider the norm now. So I think that religion has the capacity to do more harm uh, than good. Many people that I meet in Catholic churches that are ostensibly Catholic, I don't consider Catholic. I think that they have strayed because they're pro-choice, because they're pro-women's ordination, because they're pro-gay marriage, because they are actively homosexual. Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. You need to understand that I'm not a Bible alone Christian. I have a living magisterium, which means my church is apostolic, which means that St. Peter was given the keys to bind and to loose. But David, we're we're doing exactly what it is that I think is dangerous about religion. Um, We have to critique uh, what it is our families give us. And if those are not up to the challenges and the realities of the world in which we live, then we need to sharpen them or change them or dispose of them and pick up new tools. And that's where West Hill is. We're at the work of picking up the tool of taking that work of love one another and making it viable and valuable in today's world where love one another is not happening in a significant way, predominantly because of the falling away of communities of care. And I don't think that what happened uh, in the church in the 1950s and 60s, when it was growing by leaps and bounds, the Protestant church here in Canada, I don't think that it was attracting massive numbers because of its theology or because of its oratory or because of its Sunday school curriculums. I think that it was growing because people were falling in love with being together. That's the phrase I use all the time. And that's what leads to improved subjective well-being. And if I'm going to try to make the world a better place, um, because I don't believe in an afterlife real estate, that's what I want to do. I want to invite people and give them the opportunity to fall in love with being together. And in that moment, find a change in their heart, which would be the equivalent of the transformational change that the love of Jesus has professed to do uh, in previous generations. That's the work I'm about, right? I'm about this world, and I'm about uh, changing hearts. Yeah. Um, Pope Francis, what do you think about him? What do you like about him? And what don't you like about him? Just name sort of two pros and two cons, if you would, please. Well, two pros. He's charismatic, and he comes from South America, right? Those are two pros. The con is the same con, and it would be the manner in which he has failed 
as all popes before him, he has failed to deal with some of the most significant issues in the Catholic Church right now, and that's the sexual abuse of children um, is appalling and unforgivable. I don't know how someone who identifies as the agent of God can continue to neglect that. I just, I just find that appalling. So that's one negative and two negative. That's all the negatives. I don't think he's neglecting his duty. How could you do better than Pope Francis, not only in terms of the sex abuse scandal, but in terms of navigating the bark of St. Peter, the, the Christian church, what would you do? Okay, okay, all right. All the property that the Roman Catholic Church owns is turned over to people in need or sold so that that money could be given to pay off the debts of small countries or alleviate poverty or sickness or something like that. So liquidate your assets and make them as transformational as possible. Then I'd just be the uh, popess in a basement apartment with, you know, no hot water or something and be happy, right? Anyway, I, I, I've got to go. But. Yeah, okay. Um, just quickly, at the end of my interviews, I do ask my guests to give a little closing thought, something positive. What could you say to anyone that might be out there listening now? Um, that I think that the most important thing that anyone can do is to engage in dialogue and to approach that dialogue, recognizing that the lines that are between us are permeable. And conversation, the root word of conversation is conversion. And we need to be always open to what the other person has to offer, which doesn't mean that we need to renegotiate whole conversations that we've had in the past, but it does mean that we need to open our hearts to the other person and and hear what's being said. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is ask.